Good morning. I count it a great honor, and it's a great delight to be able to be here. For me to be here this weekend, it's been, for me, kind of a, a unicorn sighting. I say that because you don't see this kind of a church very often. If you see a church this size, typically in the U.S., it's a church that's built with wood and hay and stubble. But this is a really rare church of this size because I've spent time with y'all and it's built with gold and silver and precious stones. Uh, the Lord has brought mighty men to this church. I thoroughly enjoyed the time on Friday and Saturday. And uh, appreciate your pastors as well. Even uh, your, your lead pastor, Blake, uh, he introduces himself and I say, yeah, Blake, you've written about, boy, nine, ten books. He says, yeah, I'm a nerd. Okay. <laughs> he may be a nerd, but, but he's, a, he's a mighty man nerd. And you should be thankful for what you have in this place and the, the blueprint and the way that the great carpenter has been at work here at Southside Church. You have had the boundary lines fall for you in blessed places in this place. It also kind of reminds me of back at home. I pastored in Holland, Michigan for 28 years. And something about the Dutch culture is when you're at a congregation of a Dutch church dating back to the 1800s, in the front row would sit the domini, the elders. And if you would say something theologically incorrect, you'd be reproved. So look, I come here, you got Blake right in the front row here. <laughs> Take it easy on me this morning, Blake. But let's go to the Word of God. And I'm not going to say to you anything new this morning. Peter says, I think it proper to stir up in you by way of memory, things that you already know. And that's what I'll be doing here this morning. So turn with me to John chapter 3, and I'm going to seek to go right down the center of the plate. John 3, 16, you know the text, but that's okay. I'm stirring you up by way of reminder. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your day. We thank you that you invite us into your house, and we pray that you would give us your spirit. We pray we'd have him in rich measures. Don't leave us to the barren experience of a man talking to men. We want to hear the voice of God. So we pray that you would come, Holy Spirit. We think of how on that first Lord's Day, Jesus came and merged with men on the road to Emmaus, and by the time he was done, they remarked, did not our hearts burn within as he spoke to us? And we pray that we'd be able to remark the same after this worship. We prayed in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have been focusing in this weekend on encouragement, adrenaline for the soul. And I want you to know that this is not some kind of 
therapy theme that we have. This is not some kind of moralistic, therapeutic deism where I've been speaking to men about the need for them to be encouragers, to be Barnabas men. Uh, God is not a cosmic therapist who coaches people to enjoy successful living through happiness and self-esteem and fulfilling relationships. Uh, God does not have as a central goal that we would avert depression, be happy, and feel good about ourselves. That's not what we've been talking about, encouragement, adrenaline for the soul. But really, ultimately, the medicine for our souls is the encouragement of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ alone imparts the eternal life to every soul that needs to avert not just some kind of emotional depression, but an eternal depression. That's where we're all heading. I met a guy named Galen who sat right about there yesterday and he had a a bandage on the back of his neck because he went to a skin doctor and they had to take a block out of his neck and he is waiting for the test. Is it going to be just some basal cell carcinoma or is it going to be some melanoma? And basically they say, Galen, you got six months to live. So I don't mean to disturb you, Galen, but, but that's a real possibility for all of us. You see, all of us are headed, as it says in Hebrews 9, man is destined to die once and then comes the judgment. And the gospel enables us to avert an eternal depression of outer darkness and hell. And I've been speaking about themes of encouragement all weekend, but now I get to speak about the ultimate encouragement, which is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Justification by faith and regeneration by God's Spirit alone can bring true joy and enduring peace. And any self-help treatment short of this spiritual new birth is tragically and fatally nearsighted. So, I want to consider the biblical gospel as the ultimate encouragement. Now, just understand, you believer who's been a saint for W-O, how long have you been a saint? Maybe 40 years, 50 years, W-O, don't you dare toot me out thinking that I'm talking about the guy back there in row 17, he's a visitor, oh, he gets to hear the gospel. No, I'm talking to you, W-O. I'm talking to me on this side of the pulpit. I'm talking to all of us. We all need the gospel, whether it's the first time we hear it or the 10,000th time we hear it. It is crucial that we hear it and we drink it in like the medicine that we desperately need because it's not just for lost sinners. It's also for sin-tossed saints. So we all need to pay attention to this. Just, Just consider with me how the gospel is the ultimate encouragement in four ways. First, consider how the gospel saves for eternity. The gospel saves for eternity. Around the middle of the 19th century, Morris Risch painted a masterpiece that's entitled Checkmate. You may have seen it. It's a gripping scene with a peace-filled chessboard as its centerpiece. And on one side is the devil looking with a predatory face on a young man who's sitting on the other side of the table whose face is full of fear and there are tears running down the cheeks because what's happened is 
on the chessboard of life, the devil, by way of seduction and temptation, has checkmated the young man who has sold his soul to Satan. It's a pitiable picture. It depicts the moral tragedy of life when naive youths sell their souls to Satan and surrender to him in utter despair. Well, legend has it that this painting was on a wall in a prominent place, and a handful of men came by and stared at the painting and were amazed at its profundity, and then they walked away, except one man was a chess master. He stared for 10 minutes, and then 20 minutes, and then 40 minutes, and then an hour, but at the hour point, he said, wait a minute, because he was examining the configuration of pieces on the table. And he said, wait a minute. It's not checkmate, he says. It's not checkmate. He says, there is a move. And the truth of it is that all of us have sold our souls to Satan, and all of us in these blue chairs, we sit tragically checkmated by our sinful treachery against God. But I'm here to tell you, for you, I don't care what you've done this past week, this past decade, in your lifetime, I'm telling you, there is a move for you. I recently met a 26-year-old man who came to our house to carpet our living room, and he had been a soldier in Afghanistan and in Iraq, and here he's playing on his phone this Christian music, and my wife asked him, what's that all about? And he said, oh, the Lord saved me. You see, he told us a tale then about how he had sinned miserably when he was off in Iraq in Afghanistan, and he had done unspeakable things that you wouldn't want to utter. And back home, he had a wife and two children, and he had jeopardized his marriage. He had jeopardized his whole family. When he came home, he was depressed and downcast because his sins haunted him like dragons. And he considered that he'd been checkmated by Satan. He was the young man on the opposite side of that table. But he discovered when he heard the gospel that there was a move that he could go to the Lord Jesus Christ, that he could be saved. And he did. He went to the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the gospel is the ultimate word of encouragement to fainting and collapsing souls. It tells all of us here today there is a move. You can go to the Lord Jesus Christ. He can rescue you. He can snatch you from your death row bench. That checkmated Marine and, and any criminal, hell-deserving sinner, and, and I, all of us can go to Christ. In fact, you can go to him right now. In fact, I'm so mystical, I told the men, I don't know what's going on at Southside Church, but I believe there is a purpose for my being here. And I believe right now that there is somebody sitting in a blue chair that the Lord caused us to have this this intersection of our lives, and there is a, a move that you need to make this morning. I don't care if you're W-O, I don't care if you're visited here for the first time, there is a move that you need to make. And I want you to come with me to this, to this ugly shaped hill outside of Jerusalem back in 30 AD, because it's on that hill that the Lord Jesus hung naked, nailed to the cross. And the Bible records that there was this loud cry that came out at the ninth hour of that day, 
And it says in Matthew 27, 46, that the Lord Jesus shouted out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And let me ask you, what, what's going on here at this hill? What's going on is that Jesus is taking the electric chair of eternal punishment in the place of sinners. He's been banished to the hellish horror of teeth-gnashing outer darkness, away from the smile and favor of his Father. He's undergoing God's wrath that all sinners deserve. He's, he's taken our hell. He's sacrificing himself as our substitute. See, what's going on there on that hill is that all the sins of his criminal friends at that moment in time were being legally imputed to the Lord Jesus, were being downloaded onto the hard drive of Christ's infinite soul. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Every bitter thought, every evil deed. Don't you sing that song here? Crowning his blood-stained brow. This the power of the cross. Christ died for us. That's what's going on on that cross on, on, on Golgotha. Spurgeon, you ever, you ever quote Spurgeon, Blake, here? And your wife nudged you on that one. <clears throat> Spurgeon once preached regarding Christ's cry of dereliction from the cross. And Spurgeon said this, this voice out of the belly of hell marks the lowest depth of the Savior's grief. The desertion was real. And Spurgeon continued on. Spurgeon says, we believe this agony was equal to the agony of the lost in hell. And remember, not, not the equivalent for the agony of one, but an equivalent for all the hells of all that innumerable host of souls whose sins he bore, condensed into one black cup, to be drained in a few hours, the miseries of an eternity without end, miseries caused by a God infinitely angry because of an awful rebellion, and these miseries multiplied by the millions for whom the man Jesus stood as a covenant head. Ah, oh, what a bitter cup, Spurgeon says, that was. And yet he drained that cup, drained it down to the last dregs, and not a drop left. And you think of how Christ, having drained that bitter cup, he shouted out in triumph, it is finished. And then bowing his head, it says he gave up his spirit in John 19.30. It's so interesting, W.O., that Spurgeon, Spurgeon, he was given to depression and discouragement. And you can just see in the preaching how he's encouraging his own heart with the, the adrenaline of the encouragement of the gospel. Listen to what Spurgeon says in this sermon, giving himself the ultimate encouragement to his own previously checkmated guilty soul. Spurgeon says this, For you, my soul, no flames of hell. For Christ, the Paschal Lamb, has been roasted in that fire. For you, my soul, no torments of the damned. For Christ has been condemned in your place. Ah, oh, the gospel is the ultimate encouragement for hell-deserving sinners like me and W.O. and Blake and all of us. 
See, Jesus' great work on the cross for sinners accomplished what our good works never could. Because, you know, it's a futile move for us to go to our pile of good stuff that we've done. It's just rubbish. Go, go to Jesus. Believe only in his finished work on the cross for sinners. You know that text, Galatians 2.16. Listen carefully. Just let it soak in. Put it under your tongue. Let it dissolve there. Listen. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no man, no woman, no child will be justified. That's Galatians 2, 16. That's just the simple gospel. I read it at the beginning. Just, just let it soak in, bask in it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. You see that main point, number one of, of the four, the gospel saves for eternity. <clears throat> Let's go to number two of the four, and that is the gospel is all you need. The gospel is all you need. Back in December of 2016, back in Holland, Michigan, during the winter on a dairy farm of a man who had farmed those fields and taken care of cattle on that estate. You could look out the window and see these craggy, leafless trees. I was there at the bedside of a dear Christian brother named Glenn who was dying of, of cancer. He was almost skeletal there as he lay in that hospice bed. At the time I was visiting him, he was told he probably had maybe a couple of weeks to live. And we as a church would have night vigils. Uh, Glenn's wife didn't want Glenn to die alone, and she couldn't stay up 24-7. So I'd be oftentimes there, maybe uh, 1 a.m., 2 a.m., 3 a.m., and sometimes in the dark of the night, Glenn would be discouraged and he'd be afraid because his sins would rise up like roaring dragons and his assurance of being heaven-bound was shaken. <clears throat> and then one night he was stirring and I said, hey, Glenn, you okay? What's going on? And he, he pulled out of his pajama pocket this verse that he scratched, having told me his fear, his lack of assurance that he had because of his sins that were shouting against him and opened up the scrap of paper he wrote. It said on there, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And he told me that, Pastor Mark, this, this promise is the only hope that I got. And, and I did my best to encourage him there in the darkness. Come on, Glenn, cling to the gospel promise as a drowning man clings to a life preserver in a stormy sea. Glenn, be encouraged, I tried to say. Christ will hold you fast. And then when just a few days later, Glenn's cancer storm ended, he was washed up on the shore of another world. And I, I haven't seen Glenn since then. I saw his casket a few days later, but I've mused about Glenn's experience. And 
And I'm thinking then that Glenn was soon after he breathed his last greeted by angels who then escorted him into the presence of the judge of all the earth. And I'm thinking that there Glenn stood. And I'm thinking there the evil devil might have appeared accusing Glenn in a predatory way of all of his recorded crimes of thought and word and deed with a dragon-like accent. I'm thinking that the devil said, surely as God stood before them all, surely this filthy sinner is mine. He, he sold his soul to me. He sinned away any right to be yours. He's guilty of high crimes against your law. He's a criminal deserving forever punishment in hell. Checkmate. But, but it's then that I'm thinking that Glenn kind of opened up his hand with all he had. And he uncrumpled a scrap of paper and boldly read it aloud, confessing Jesus as his Lord and his Savior who died on the cross and rose for him. It's kind of like Glenn and I had sung together on that bed the Favorite song of Billy Graham, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. And all, all I'm saying to you is that that one crumpled that promises, that's all Glenn needed. That one promise. And then, then I'm thinking that Jesus strode forward into that scene and he showed his wounded hands and his feet. And I think Jesus declared that, that he has already taken Glenn's Sentence. He's already hung in Glenn's place. He's strapped in Glenn's electric chair while he was on the cross. And he, he's saying, I took the full voltage of the Father's wrath that Glenn deserved for his sins. And, and I paid it in full, the infinite debt to your justice, Father. And then I'm thinking that Glenn got this change of clothing. I'm thinking that the filthy rags of Glenn's sinful performance were exchanged for the radiant white linen of Christ's perfect obedience. And then I'm thinking, dressed like that, Glenn was escorted past an annoyed Satan, past a stairway that led downward to hell and into the most excellent of banquets for Christ's blood-bought friends. Because here's a prophetic sketch of what I was thinking. I, Zechariah 3, 1, we see that for Glenn and all those who sincerely believe in the gospel, here's kind of the picture as, as the high priest represents God's people as Jesus stands as a condemned prisoner in the dock. It says here in Zechariah 3, 1, and he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord who chose Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? And that's what Glenn was. Now, now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. And he answered and spoke to those who stood before him saying, take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, see, I have removed your iniquity from you and I have clothed you with rich robes, and then let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they put the clothes on him, and the angel of the Lord stood by. See what I'm saying to you, I'm saying to you who have a 
bandage on the back of your neck. I'm saying to you who may have to get in one of those F-15 trucks parked out there in the parking lot and you may be slammed broadside in about uh, 75 minutes and you'll breathe your last. Maybe you're going to be dying on a gravelly roadside with your lifeblood pouring out of your ears and your nose and your mouth. I'm just saying for you, who are dust into dust, you will return just like me. The gospel is all we need. That crumb, and we need something desperately. The gospel is all we need. The gospel saves for eternity. But thirdly, out of four main heads, think of how the gospel provides acceptance with God. The gospel provides acceptance with God. We, we need to understand that this gospel encouragement isn't only for the dying, it's also for the living in every conceivable circumstance. I spent a lot of time talking to the men on Friday and Saturday. Let me just speak a word to the women. By the way, I love it that we've got children teeming all over this place. I, I talked to some of the men. Uh, I have two children. I have three children. I have four children. I have five children. Like I say, this is kind of a unicorn sighting in 2023 to see mothers giving themselves to nurturing children. See, the gospel is for women who desperately want to be super moms, but find that they just don't measure up. There's a book I read a while back called Christ in the Chaos, How the Gospel Changes Motherhood. It's written by a woman named Kim Crandall, and she tells of her spiritual odyssey as a mom. You see, she got pregnant and then was immediately deluged by her Christian women friends and mentors with books and pamphlets telling how much to eat and how precisely to exercise and exactly how much weight to gain and how to train for labor and breastfeed and, and manage diapers. And she writes, <clears throat> I was going to be a quiverful, all-natural, homeschooling, dress-wearing, bread-baking, whole-foods-eating mother. You can relate to that here, can't you? But she says, then the babies came, and they came, and they came, and that was it. I couldn't be the kind of mother I wanted to be, the kind of woman I honestly regarded as more godly than others. And so I labeled myself as a failure, and I spent the next several years in a terrible depression. She says, yeah, several years and it all came to a head for Kim one evening as she sat in the dark. She was rocking in a chair, and she was reflecting about how miserably she had fallen short that day, having impatiently scolded her son and, and cursed aloud with an earshot of her daughter and having neglected the needs of her husband. And so she sat there rocking in that chair, convicted in her guilt cell. You see, her motherhood odyssey had led her to despair of herself, feeling like she had fallen so far short. She just couldn't do this. She, she couldn't be the, the God-it-all-together supermom God deserved her to be. And she thought that God would just never love her, but instead that God would just kick her away in disgust. What was it time for? It was time for Kim to make a move, to run to the Lord Jesus Christ, to be reminded of the only way to find acceptance with God. You see, 
Kim needed a shot of adrenaline with the ultimate encouragement of the gospel. Because in, in, in mommy meltdown moments, Christian women don't need fundamentally to be reminded of the what would Jesus do behavior list. But when they're rocking in chairs in those shadows, they need to be reminded of the what Jesus already did gospel balm and needs to be applied liberally. Kim put it this way, Jesus is not only my example, Jesus is my replacement. He came to do everything I haven't done, could never do, and he did it sinlessly and perfectly. Jesus never had a moral meltdown. He never lashed out in profanity at his disciples or his enemies, even when they were wagging their heads at him while he was pinned to the cross. Because you see, on the cross, Jesus wore Kim's humiliating dunce cap so that in her rocking chair, she might wear his impressive crown of righteousness. And And wearing the apparel of Christ's righteousness, Kim sits accepted in the lap of her heavenly father, in whose eyes Kim is absolutely adorable. Adorable. I've got our our tenth grandchild is to be born, God willing, tomorrow, C-section. Being a grandpa is a glorious thing. When that 14-month-old pops out of the tub and his curly hair and, and you, you take the beefy towel and you, 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 you mess up his hair and, you, and you, then you wrap him up in that beefiness. He's all clean, isn't he? He's all clean. He's, he's absolutely adorable. And you know the way I look on a, a grandson like that, adorable, you, mom, Wrapped up in the beefy righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are adorable to him. Just like when he from heaven looked at his son in the Jordan River and said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He looks on you, mommy. Oh, I know what you've done. I know what you said. I know, what, I know how far you fall short today. But Wrapped up in the beefiness of that towel of Christ's righteousness, you are adorable. One commentator tries to help female failures rocking in the dark by quoting Isaiah 61.10. It says there, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robes of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Chair rocking lady, in Christ you are in the finest of wedding apparel. (laughs) This commentator goes on like this. I just think, I still remember in 1982 when my wife walked down that aisle in Waterloo, Iowa. Oh man, was she adorable. And that is what Christ the groom sees in us. And one commentator says this. It's Jesus' delight to dress you up in garments that befit your calling as the bride of the Lord of lords. 
And when he looks at you, he smiles with deep, yeah, even when you're rocking in that chair, feeling so fall short in your failures. He smiles on you with deep affection. He has clothed you in a robe of righteousness. You are radiant without any stain or shadow of guilt, glistening, white, pure. Yet when we focus introspectively and narrowly on our sin, we're like a bride who insanely shreds her gown and then hides in a corner ashamed and self-condemning and wretched. All she sees is her shame, but Christ thinks, She's magnificent. She's gorgeous, glorious, noble, honorable. Think in terms of Princess Diana or next generation, Princess Kate on her wedding day. And then just let your imagination soar. And remember this, you're not beautiful because you've been allowed to play dress up with some other bride's wardrobe. No, he's made you holy in body, soul, and spirit. We're not playing dress up. This is who we really are. In Christ Jesus, God made him who knew no sin. He became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Ladies, could it be that we really deserve God's repulsed disgust, but in Christ instead we get God's well-pleased affirmation, his authentic commendation, his delighted praise, even his hearty applause. I mean, applause, a praise. What are you saying? God applauding us, giving praise to us? You realize that it speaks of in uh, Romans 2, 28, 29, how a Jew is one, the word Jew means praised of God. Do you realize that in Christ Jesus, we are seed of Abraham. We are true Jews in the sense that we are the praise of God. Zechariah speaks of, Zephaniah speaks of God singing over us, God being delighted in us. And, and this, is, this is really a crucial thing, because as creatures made in the image of God, we all instinctively pine and ache for affirmation and praise. There's one commentator, he drives it home to our sinful hearts this way. He says this, all your life you've been knocking on a door, affirm me. Love me. Tell me I'm okay. You've been working all your relationships so that somehow you can steal self-acceptance from other people. Grasshoppers on the horizontal line. Maybe some of you ladies, you want other ladies in the church to esteem you. Or you've, as men, wanted other guys on the team to think highly of you. We all ache for that kind of acceptance, but the commentator says here, but it never works. But in the gospel, the door at which you've been knocking will open at last. And now finally, the only pair of eyes in the universe whose opinion counts, those eyes look at you and see in you an absolute beauty. And finally, the door on which you've been knocking all your life has been opened at last. And now, the natural world ceases to have any claim on you. Who cares what those grasshoppers think now? Who cares about their criticisms now? Because the God of heaven has accepted me. That's what we have in the gospel. You see, the gospel is the ultimate word of encouragement, uh, affirming our ever knocking and trembling and aching and insecure souls. And this kind of perfect love casts out all fear. 
All fear of man, the fear of man on the horizontal level will prove to be a snare. And we have no fear of anything else because if the God of heaven has accepted me, then Romans 8, who can be against me? Rocking chair, mommies, the gospel is for you in your parenting, in your time of difficulty. Just, just lastly, before we close, just consider how the gospel is a cure-all for every spiritual ailment. For every spiritual ailment. In Greek mythology, there's a character called Panacea. Panacea is the goddess of the cure. You read in the mythology and you see that if a, <clears throat> if a warrior gets hit with an arrow, Panacea appears. Pour this potion on it as she has a little flask. Or if the king is fevered, Panacea appears with her bottle. Pour the potion on that. Or if a child's been injured, Panacea appears. Pour the potion on that. See, see Panacea means a cure-all and she is the goddess of curing for every issue. What I'm saying to you is the gospel is a panacea. It's a cure for whatever fever that you got here this morning, for whatever wound, for whatever break your soul has endured. Pour the gospel into that and that. I don't know what's happened here. I'm just shooting in the dark here in Abilene, Texas. But, but the Lord knows. He brought you here with your, with your ache, with your fever, with your wound. I'm just saying the gospel is the cure for every ailment you got. In fact, John Stott views the gospel as way. Stott says, all gospel, excuse me, all progress in gospel life depends on a recapitulation of the original terms of one's acceptance with God. So in the Christian life, we, we never outgrow our daily need to hourly recite to us the truths of the gospel. So we think of how Every step we take on the spiritual battlefield and facing foes and issues in our lives like disappointment. Is that ever here in people who sit in blue chairs? Or how about anger? Any bitterness here? Any resentment? Any temptation here? Any fear here? Any selfishness? Any weakness? That requires us to deliberately revisit and remind ourselves of the gospel. So, so come on, pour the gospel into that, and into that, and into that, and into that as well. Think about late in the apostle's life, he was surrounded by a whole host of discouraging circumstances. He was imprisoned with Rome. He was in a cell. His head was about to fall into a basket. His friends had left him, heretics were plaguing the church, it seemed that everything was against him. And then he wrote there in 2 Timothy 2.8 to his protege Timothy, who also was, was timid and full of despair and no doubt discouragement. And Paul wrote to him and said, remember Jesus Christ, seed of David, raised from the dead according to my gospel. That, that's it. Remember, remember. Jesus Christ raised from the dead according to my gospel. Remember how significant that was back in Jerusalem and how everything was dark and bleak and hopeless because 
Christ had died on that cross and they, they took him down and they sealed him up inside that tomb and the seal of Rome was on that tomb and there was no chance. And the disciples were huddled in the upper room and there was bleakness and there was suffocation with discouragement. But then what happened? Jesus rose from the dead according to Paul's gospel. And the point is that the Circumstances can be so bad, but all that needs to happen is God speaks a word and the tables are turned completely and the earth quakes and circumstances change. And just that's the way it is regarding the Lord Jesus Christ. I was once in a church in Mebane, North Carolina. It was a, about two and a half, three years ago. And they had just lost one of their pastors to pancreatic cancer. Bam, he was gone in a matter of five, six weeks. And then they lost, within three months of that, another pastor, bam, the COVID, gone. And this church was bleak and church was dark. But the point is, we can always consider how, according to the gospel of Christ, remember, Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, according to my gospel, God is always able, with the speaking of a word, to turn the tables. He is Lord of all. You see, Jesus, who rose from the dead, is not dead Lord Jesus Christ has risen and ascended and he's gathered into his hands the reins of the universe there at the right hand of the majesty on high and, and he's Lord of all. And he is supernaturally causing all things in the life of Southside Church and every person who believes in Christ in these blue chairs. He is engineering that all things will be working for good for you. B.B. Warfield comments this way, if our hearts should fail us as we stand over against the hosts of wickedness which surround us, let us encourage ourselves and one another with this great reminder. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, seed of David. That's the gospel. Listen, you here who are discouraged, Christ is at the right hand of the majesty on high. And there the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the whole Trinity is conspiring that everything will work to your good. Why would you be discouraged? according to Christ's gospel. Think of all the issues that could be here in this church. I know a man who participated in sexual perversion in his youth and is haunted with feelings of indelible moral filthiness. I know of another man who, who cheated on his wife, and though she forgave him, he's still plagued with paralyzing guilt. I know of still another man who, who, who's visited cybernet whorehouses where he's looked on women committing adultery in his heart. I know of, a, of another man who recklessly miscalculated while driving a truck, crashed into a motorist, resulting in the manslaughter death of someone's precious son. And I know of another man who, due to his own folly, committed a, a serious business blunder causing the bankruptcy of his business and collapsing his large family's comfortable standard of living. And all of these men battle with bouts of strangling, dejection, and depression. You know what I say to all those guys? Pour the gospel onto that, and onto that, and onto that, and onto that. I, I've sat in coffee shop with, uh, with more than one man who says, you know, there's this particular sin in my life. And it's like a Philistine. I, he, he comes at me, and I, and, and I strike him down. And he seems like he's dead. But then 
the next week or the next month, there he is again, that, that scar-faced temptation. I strike him down, but it keeps coming back again and again and again. I don't know if I continue to fight this fight. In fact, the man in the coffee shop says to me, I'm thinking the fact that I'm still fighting against the sin indicates I'm not even a Christian at all. And I'm discouraged and I'm in despair. Go to Romans chapter 7. We read together in that coffee shop, the Apostle Paul, who was a true Christian, said, you know, when I would do good, evil is right there with me. So that I don't do the good that I would do, but the evil that I wouldn't do, that I do. Ah, what a wretched man am I. Who will rescue me from this body of death? But then he concludes in the chapter, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. For in him there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what's your problem, man? Pour the gospel into into that, it's a cure-all for every evil. Because on the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ has taken these issues, and the Lord Jesus Christ has dealt with them. I still remember going back to Glen. I still remember the time when that Saturday morning in January of 2017, my brother, cancer-ridden Glen, finished his uphill marathon against cancer, You'd be over at Glenn's house late at night and his blanket would go up, then down, then up, then down. And you'd wonder, is he gone? And go up again and down. But that Saturday morning, uh, his wife sat next to me and we watched and it went up and down and never came up again. And Glenn was gone. I remember a few nights earlier, I had said to Glenn in the night, I read him this passage from Malachi 4.2, describing how it says, but you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings and you shall go forth like calves released from a stall. And Glenn was kind of glazed eyes over. I said, Glenn, what does that mean? He was a dairy farmer. What does that mean? You shall go forth like calves released from a stall. It's like he became lucid and he said, oh, that's like in the spring when they've been pent up all winter. But then when the spring comes and you swing open the door and the calf goes out and runs in the meadows like crazy. And my response to Glenn was, you know, Glenn, that's you. You're all pent up in this skeletal body. You're, you're pinned in this old hospice bed. But Glenn, it won't be long and the barn door is going to be thrown open and you'll be set free into paradise like a calf released from the stall. You're almost there, Glenn. You're almost there. And within about a week, skeletal Glenn breathed his last and Glenn experienced reality. You see, gospel encouragement is the most potent of adrenaline and we should... Tell it to other people. Yeah, go out and tell it to other people here all throughout Abilene. But listen, before you do that, tell it to yourself. We should be constantly pouring the gospel onto that and that and that. And I'm just telling you, I, I don't care if this is the first time or the 10,000th and first time. Pour the gospel into it. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Trust in the Lord Use this time. Don't waste this opportunity. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and the Lord will have mercy on your soul. Let's pray together.